Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. All right. So, hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have a very special guest. Hannah, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Hannah Alkaf, and I'm a writer of young adult and middle grade fiction. And I'm from Malaysia. I guess that's a relevant thing to, to mention at this point. <laughs> yes, you are 12 hours in the future, correct? I am 12 hours in the future. Hello. Everything's still fine, guys. We made it. <laughs> We're still alive. The world is still turning. We're all good. You know, that's <laughs> especially reassuring these days. I was yeah, just about exactly. to say that. <laughs> exactly. Every time I have a conversation with someone in America, I'm like, I'm in the future and we're still fine. We oh, exist. Uh, we're good. I love, you're like a beacon. It's awesome. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so Hannah, tell us, how did you know that, how did you know that you wanted to be a writer? I grew up in a house that was always full of books. My parents always made sure that we had books and I was read to as a kid constantly. My sister says I was very annoying because I um, I would insist that stories didn't count unless you did the voices. <laughs> so if you just read me a story, but they didn't do the voices, um, I would be like, no, I'm sorry. This this doesn't work. You need to you need to start from the beginning. I was apparently a little tired. So it was a natural transition to me to go from wanting to hear stories all the time to wanting to make them up by myself. Pretty much, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, and it's a goal I've been working on probably since I was about 10 or 11. I had my first published short story when I was 18, but then I didn't write anything else until I was in my 30s, <laughs> and in terms of fiction anyway. I went to journalism school and concentrated on writing nonfiction instead for many, many years. That's a path of a lot of writers. We hear that. The journalism really? moves really easily. I wrote my first published short story at 18. And then at that point, I was still so young that I thought if it was something you were supposed to do, it had to be easy. I thought it was supposed to come effortlessly. Like if there was something that you were supposed to be doing, I thought, you know, inspiration should just come from the heavens and words would just pour out of you. And when I tried to write the next short story and it didn't work that way, I just thought that meant that I wasn't cut out to be writing fiction. And so I concentrated entirely on being a journalist, on, on, on getting trained as a journalist and being the best nonfiction writer I could be. I knew, I knew that I had to work with words somehow. Mm. But when the stories didn't come as easily as I thought they should, as I thought they would for someone who was meant to be writing fiction, um, I just kind of gave up on it and thought, clearly, this isn't my forte. I should be concentrating on something else. What was your turning point? <laughs> the turning point was I turned 30 and I thought, what is stopping you? And I had no good answer for myself. So that was when I wrote my second short story and it won a local um, writing award. Like it won wow. a local competition. Yeah, that was my second short story. And I thought, oh, okay, you know what? <laughs> Maybe I've been selling myself short this whole time. Maybe I should. And I'm the type of person who needs to set goals for myself. So after I had a few published short stories, I thought, okay, the next thing is I should be trying to write a novel. I should be, I should be going bigger each time. You know, I should be, I should be challenging myself to progress. So that's how that happened. That's <laughs> it was amazing. kind of an accidental thing. <laughs> how did you decide to write the story that you did write? 
I had just come off writing a, a nonfiction book. Um, and the nonfiction book, which is locally published, was about the landscape of mental illness in Malaysia, which is something that is still fairly, it's not something we talk about. It's taboo. And a lot of the writing that goes into um, talking about mental illness in Malaysia is either very sensational or it's very academic. There was nothing in the in-between that helped you understand what it was like to live with mental illness in Malaysia. So it was, it wasn't really, I mean, it was a gathering of stories and a sort of journalistic work of putting together what it's like to live with different mental illnesses, what it's like to work in the field, what what kind of you know constraints and restrictions that we face here. And one of the things that was most interesting to me, also through personal experience, was this intersection between mental illness and, and religion and faith and traditional belief. Because we are a society in Malaysia that still very much believes in, in traditional beliefs. And we're a very religious society in, um, with a lot of different religions. I wanted to explore that in book form because I don't think that there's been a ton of writing about what it's like to be Muslim and mentally ill. And I also wanted to spotlight like a specific time in our history that really shaped us as a country and that not many people know about even within the country. <laughs> the May 13th race riots were really a pivotal moment for us in our development as a nation. And it's something that we still live with the repercussions of, but it's not really taught in schools. It's not really like almost 200 people died during these riots, but it's not something we talk about a lot in schools. It's taught in maybe two or three paragraphs. And I don't want people to forget. It's too important for us as a people to have it be forgotten. So I took these two things and I kind of put them together in the story. And thankfully, people seem to think it worked. <laughs> a lot of people think that it works and we're very excited for you. I am also very excited. I have no idea how it's going to be received. It is a very, and as with all my stories, it's very unapologetically Malaysian. It doesn't pander to a, a Western audience. It is a Malaysian story. So my worry really is that is that um, is how it's going to be received by a non-Malaysian audience. And hopefully it'll be okay. But you know, we'll see. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about what your journey to publication has been like? I'm always a little bit hesitant. Like I always like to preface this by saying that my journey sounds deceptively fast and that you shouldn't take it as a template for anything or a blueprint for anything. But basically, I started writing this story in December of 2016. I finished it in February of 2017. Just amazing. I, I do write very quickly. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> I Probably from your journalism background. Journalists are great at deadlines. Probably. And, and, and also because I, I, I prepare intense outlines first. Like mm -hmm. I do a lot of research and do all the outlines beforehand. So when I start writing, it's literally just putting the story on the page. But yeah, I, I finished it in February. Uh, I headed out to beta readers, basically had an edited version and started querying in March. I had my first offer of representation in two weeks. At um, which point everyone listening panics. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's why I'm like, I, I always preface this by saying this isn't exactly normal. I don't know what it was. I think it was just like, cosmic like timing and luck but I had my first offer of in two weeks uh, I signed with my agent in April and I had a deal by May Hannah so. oh 
my gosh. I really quickly. It's amazing. It's amazing. I still kind of can't believe it. Um, But But yeah, and and the deal was announced in June. It sounds like something that was just meant to be, though. I mean... We, I'm we just were, saying, I think it was it was like some holy like timing and luck and just some, like something ridiculous because it, that, that that was just way too fast. I don't know how it happened. No, like, but, you, but if you're a journalist and you have that journalistic eye, but you're also a storyteller, you've been doing this for years and you had yeah. all of the pieces in place. So when you decided to do it, you had the toolbox and you sat down and you focused and you did it. And a lot of people talk about, oh, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. And it takes, you know, they, they never get to the third chapter and you just did it. <laughs> you, I, I, I'm yeah. so impressed with you. I'm, I'm, I'm inspired hearing your story. I guess that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm inspired. I'm glad. I'm glad that it's, it comes off as inspiring. I'm, I'm always I don't want to. I, I don't want to give people the impression that it's always supposed to happen this fast. Like I do think that there was, you know, there was a perfect storm of things happening that that made it this quick for me. But I just I don't want people to have the impression that it should happen this fast. You know that that because a lot of time publishing is a waiting game. Well, and um, but true. I mean, but I th- I think what I'm hearing from you and and um my background as a teacher, I, I tell people that once in a while. But when you talk about your story, my teaching brain is like, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, I could use that. It's you know, a because... methodical checklist of like going down. Right. I mean, literally, that's what it was. And I think it was the journalism brain at work because it was literally, OK, this is the goal. You want to get an agent. You want to get published. Here's what you have to do. These are the steps. And then it's just kind of like went down a list of like check, check check, check until you got to the end. And I know it doesn't work this way for everybody. It's just, it's just one story. You know, there's plenty of pathways to publishing, but that that's my story. Yeah. I feel like most people on that list, it's like several of the steps are like panic, regroup, (laughs) try again, go on Twitter. There was definitely, there was definitely a lot of that. Um, There was definitely a lot of that as well. So I'm not going to lie about that. Um, There's definitely a lot of panic and definitely a lot, but also just at the time that I was doing it, it was good to be as far away and as removed from the community as I was because I didn't really have anybody to compare myself to. Nobody told me that it couldn't be done, so I just did it. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Um, no, There was nobody saying, this isn't how it goes. There was nobody to say, this is how long my journey took. This is how long my journey took. So it was just kind of like, okay, well... I'm just going to do it and see what happens. <laughs> I, I want to jump on that, Hannah. Are you saying okay. that you don't have a great community of fellow writers? No, I do. I just meant that. I do. I do. Uh, there is a local community, a very yep. active local community um, of writers here. I just meant that there were many people going on this same journey mm-hmm. of looking to find an agent, looking to find a publisher, things like that. Um, people, there, are, there is an active community of writers, but there, there are a lot of people who are self-published, who publish locally. So that's completely different. The local publishing scene, um, it's very small. So you deal directly with publishers. We don't have literary agents um, and things like that. So that's what I mean. I wasn't kind of plugged into like YA community yet at the time. You know, the ones who are active online and on Twitter and things like that. I wasn't really plugged into that. So I didn't have anybody's journeys to compare to. I was just kind of on my own and just doing it by myself. 
One of the things I love about this is that so many writers who are outside of the United States, and we have a lot of them with the Academy. Yes. We're in so many countries now, which is great, but a lot of writers worry that if you're not in the United States, it just doesn't work. Do you have, I mean, your proof that that's not true. You can be anywhere <laughs> as long as you have the yeah. internet and yes. you can absolutely be a successful writer. So do you have any words of wisdom or um, consolation for writers who are working from abroad? Obviously, I can't speak for all writers who are international, like who are not based in the States or in the UK or in a Western country in general. But from what I know, I think that our biggest challenge, I guess, is the tendency to self-select. We count ourselves out before we even try because we assume that we're not going to be able to make it. We assume that because we're not, you know, within the hub of, uh, of what's going on or we're not native speakers or because, you know, the audience is mostly um, American or, or things like that, that we, our stories aren't worth telling or that we're just not good enough. And I think that's, uh, that we do ourselves a great disservice <laughs> by thinking that way, because there are so many stories, um, and I speak to the Southeast Asian region in particular, but there are so many stories that are, that are still worth telling, that still need to be told to an audience that's not just us. Um, I think there are so many writers and so many stories that deserve a bigger audience than they get. And I really hope that people who listen to this who aren't based in the U.S. don't think that that's going to be their biggest barrier to getting published. It's, it's not. It's really not. And I think the, the main thing is that nobody tells you that. <laughs> but you just nobody, did, Hannah. You just yeah, told everyone I, that. I think, I think it's important. I think, it's important. I, I think the automatic tendency is to think that our stories don't have a place in, with a white audience or, or with a mostly um, Western audience. And I still worry about it. Like, it's not like I can get rid of those worries immediately. But I think it's important that somebody tells you that your stories are worth telling. So, I mean, here in Portland, we talk a lot about this. We have in Portland, Maine, I think something like 115 languages in our high school. Mm -hmm. I yeah. could be high. I mean, I could be a little off there, but it, it's, it's a lot. So... The world is increasingly smaller and we all need to understand each other. And I think that your stories are even more important than they ever have been, right. really, to, to kids everywhere. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited as well. Well, I'm not going to lie. I, I vacillate between being really excited that this book is coming out and sort of wanting to throw up about it. But, you know, <laughs> I think that's normal. I think that's normal for most debuts, maybe. So I think that's probably fine. <laughs> Well, but yeah, it, it, like the, the main thing that I want to get across to international writers is that it's not impossible. It's not as impossible as you might be making it out to yourself. I think mostly it, we get in our own way sometimes. Yeah, I think as long as you do the work, then mm -hmm. it's not going to be as hard as you think it's going to be, usually. There's always going to be little things that you do have to think about and worry about. Will you get a publisher who understands what you're trying to do with your story, who doesn't try to to, you know, whitewash it, to doesn't try to change the identities within it and things like that. Those are things you are going to have to think about and worry about. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't think that you can't break into this business just because you're not in the U.S. Absolutely. And, and on that note, I mean, you're very active on Twitter. I, I, think, I, I think we follow <laughs> each other. I, you know, I, yes, I totally can see your face. Um, we too. <laughs> um, uh, I'm probably Twitter. a little too active on Twitter. To no, I think <laughs> lovely. Um, so, I mean, so that's a great tool for writers just to join yes. a community. So what, what advice would you give to writers from around the world about using Twitter? 
I feel like there's a lot of worry about, oh, you know, it seems like this is such a clique of writers. It seems like everybody in the community knows each other. Can I just jump in? Would it seem weird? Um, and I think you should fully just jump in, start. Obviously, don't be over familiar and weird about it, but like um, join in the conversations, you know, join in the hashtags and things like that. But while Twitter has been a great tool for me to join in with the community to, you know, and I've had some really great conversations and some really great dialogue on Twitter. I would also like caution people that Twitter is really a very small subset of, of the greater world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, it, and as with any social media, it has the tendency of making things seem bigger than they are. Um, it can seem like everyone is discussing a specific thing or everyone is piling on on a specific issue and, and things like that. But I think it's good sometimes to step away from Twitter and get some perspective. That's one. Um, the other thing is that if you are an anxious person like me, um, that it's not always great for your anxiety. Um, it can seem like everyone's getting ahead and everyone's doing more than you. And as with any social media, it's a curated content stream. It's things that we put out there for people to consume. And it's a very small percentage of what's going on in someone's life. So I think it's also important. I think it's important. Twitter is great for interacting with the greater community, but I think it's also important to know when to step back. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a stressful place. Sometimes you're like, everyone is mad. Why is everyone mad? And that's what I mean. Like it, it has the tendency of taking like one small thing and suddenly making it like a huge thing. Like it, it magnifies things. So either everyone's really happy and really into something or everyone's really mad and really like piling onto something. And it, it's good to know when to step back. That's all. Yes. You but have it's to a great tool and yeah. it's a great medium. And I've met some really amazing people on there. And really, it's probably the only way that I could connect to so many members of the YA community. So I'm grateful for Twitter. I just I just think it's important to know that it's not the end of the world if you're not as active or even if you're not on it at all. Yeah, I always say Twitter is just kind of about showing up and then deciding how much, you know, how much you can take and how much right. you can get out of it. <laughs> right. You know, it, 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 it's, it's a fine line. For it sure. is a fine line. But yeah, but it, it, it is a great place to, to make friends and to make community. You just have to be aware of the, the pitfalls of it sometimes. So you do a lot of things in your life. It's very impressive. <laughs> I am always amazed with how many things you are doing. Um, um, I, I don't, I'm not really sure what we're referring to right now. I raise kids. That, that's a lot. Yes. <laughs> but um, yeah, I pretty, pretty much raise kids and write books. Um, Those are the two things that I do. You're also very politically active. Can you tell us about this recent election? Basically, Malaysia has had the same political party ruling the country since our independence in 1957. So that's 61 years, 61, is that it? Of the same party. In the past few years, our former prime minister has been accused of huge amounts of corruption. <laughs> of stealing money from uh, his citizens, of crazy spending sprees, of using basically government organizations as a front to siphon more money from, from the people. Abuse of power, basically. When the elections were announced, voting day was announced as being a Wednesday. And on top of that, we were working with redelineation exercises that made it clear that they wanted to tailor the vote in their favor 
So the weekday voting day was kind of the last straw for a lot of people. Um, it just meant that a lot of people weren't going to be able to get home in time to vote. So what I did was I decided that since I'd had the good fortune to have received a book advance and happened to have some income handy, that I was going to fund some people to go home and vote, people who couldn't afford it otherwise. And then I thought, well, since I have whatever small following that I have on Twitter, that I was going to start a thread. And I was just going to say, look, if you can help somebody get home and vote financially, then, you know, look through this thread. If you are a person who needs help going home, put a comment under this thread and we'll try and match you guys up and see if we can get this to work. And it grew kind of beyond my wildest imagination <laughs> when I started. When I started that thread, I thought I really thought I don't think anybody's really going to respond. I'm not sure that they are, um, but I put myself out there and I was like, okay, I have some money to spare. If you need help getting home to vote, I will help you as much as I can. And it was amazing because this thread started being shared and started being retweeted, and people started commenting, and people started. It, it was amazing. Um, People were paying for each other's flight, for other people's flights and other people's bus wow. tickets and train tickets. And, and, and we basically crowdfunded like a huge amount of people to be able to get home and vote. And most of them were first time voters, students who, who really couldn't afford to, to fly from state to state or to take a train or, and things like that. Um, but some were, were young families where, you know, people where the husband had to vote in one state and the wife had to vote in the other state and they weren't sure how they were going to swing that kind of cash and, and, and people who needed to get from rural areas to cities or cities to rural areas and, and all sorts of things like that. So it basically became a huge community fundraiser <laughs> on Twitter. And it was really nice to see that everybody could just come together and, and just help each other out. And nobody asked the other person who they were voting for. Nobody made it about political affiliation or anything like that. It was literally just, we got to vote and it's your right to vote. It shouldn't be a privilege. It should be your right to vote. Um, and we're going to help you do that. So that's what happened. Um, and the result was that we had a record high in terms of voter turnout, despite it being a Wednesday. The ultimate result was that we managed to to change our government. We managed to change the political party ruling ruling us for the first time in 60 odd years. That's amazing. It's, it was it, very cool. <laughs> it's it was it's very the cool. best story I've heard, you know. <laughs> it's, so, it was amazing because I, because mine was, and, and mine was literally just one thread that had people coming in. But afterwards, people started like there were people who came together and made a website where it was easier to apply for funding. They got people to, you know, get together and they, they got a centralized fund um, so that people could donate to it and then they could disperse the money to people who need it. There were people who started hashtags for carpools so that you could you could carpool um, back to your hometown from different towns um, with, with with other Malaysians and uh, get back in time to vote. Um, so it became this huge wave of just community action of like Malaysians helping Malaysians to get back to vote because it was clearly, I mean, it was very clear that our, our government wasn't going, to, wasn't going to help us at the time. Our government wasn't going to make it easy for us to get back and vote. So we decided to help each other. 
Um, and that's basically what happened. We people were carpooling, people were people were giving each other money, people were and and people who flew home, um, who got money from other people to fly home and vote. I know some people who set up stalls at airports and dispense sandwiches and drinks to people who were flying home to vote. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> and um, and and in other countries, like in, Amer- in Malaysians in America and things like that, they there was a huge outcry because postal votes were coming in really late. Our election was on the 9th and people were receiving their postal votes on the 7th or on the 8th. And, and they had to pay to get them back in time. So a lot of people either couldn't afford it or the vote the, their their ballot papers came in too late. So people would act, there were people acting as runners um, who stayed at airports who, who who would tell people you know I'm going to be at the airport flying home to Malaysia at this time. If you can get your ballot paper to me by then, I will take it back for you. And there were people waiting at the Kuala Lumpur airport to run those votes back to different cities. So it was really a huge thing of just Malaysians coming together to help each other out. It almost <laughs> feels like the perfect storm where you are adept at Twitter, you've been in journalism, you're a storyteller, <laughs> so, you can, so you can communicate and, and really make all of us understand the situation in a way that's so engrossing, just listening to your story. <laughs> it's, it's, it never even occurred to me that that would be an issue. I mean, I guess that's my, my bubble, right? That Right. It wouldn't. It would never ever like someone has to fly to vote. Like that's so yeah. foreign to us here. So because so you, you have to vote in your own constituencies, and a lot of us, you know, a lot of people leave their hometowns to work in different cities or different towns, different states, so or or even different countries. And, and it was just so clear that we there was a shorter campaign period this time around, which is why postal votes went out as late as they did. But also, they just it, it wasn't a very efficient system. So I heard stories of people who just, <laughs> there was a, I think it was in Taipei, um, there, there was a group of people that had just received their ballot papers. They had nobody to give them to. They had no runners going out on flights or anything like that. But they realized that there was a flight going from Taipei to Malaysia at about 2 a.m., 1 a.m. or something like that. And they decided to just try their luck and go to the airport and wait at the gate to see if there were any Malaysians on that flight. That could witness um, that could witness their 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 vote and also take it back for them, and it just so happened that one of the pilots of that flight was a Malaysian who was going home to vote. Oh, wow! So he took he witnessed the signing of the ballots and he took their ballots back for them. Wow! It was amazing. It was just amazing. It was the most it was the most heartwarming thing I've been a part of on Twitter, probably in my entire time on Twitter. <laughs> It was literally just an entire country like getting together and helping each other out. But yeah, it it was incredible. So I don't want anybody to listen to this and think that I was like the be all and end all of, of what was going on here. I had one thread and then everything just sort of snowballed. Like people just decided that they were going to help however they could help. They were going to help. Um, it was amazing. So let's go back to your work. I mean, how how much <laughs> do politics play a role in your book? My book is not overtly political, but it's clear that politics seeps into everything that happens in the book, if that makes sense. So it's clear that political decisions are what started the race riots. The political decisions at the top sort of trickled down to what was happening on the ground and the sentiment that was kind of being, the racial sentiment that was kind of being stoked um, by political parties in different camps. So 
without talking about the nitty gritty of politics, I would say that my book is pretty political. Yes. But you, when you when you write for children, I mean, it has to be about story. Like politics are there; they're there for all of us at all times. But like, right. kids don't care. Kids care that's, about characters. That's what I was thinking. That's what yeah. I was thinking. Uh, now it's different. Now, now kids are much more politically aware from a younger age. Right. I feel like. But at the time, I mean, when when everything kicks off in this book, my character is in a movie theater watching a movie. So, I mean, like my main character, that that's her worldview is very much uh, confined to the, the things that are familiar and the things that she knows. And she's just doing something as innocent as watching a movie when the political starts seeping into her life. That's basically it. it, it it's a very political book, but it, it's still a story, first and foremost. Um, and hopefully it's a story that will <laughs> resonate with people. Well, I also think that for a lot of successful YA, there's... There are two layers. There are the layers of typical teenage stuff, you know, all the things you do on a day-to-day basis, and the layer of what makes your book unique. And you did both of those so well. I keep forgetting that you've read it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was pretty invested in it at that point. Yes, I mean, you were. I knew from the beginning that this was going to be big. I just knew. Because it's I such know. a wonderful book. You deal with so many difficult things, and yet you still feel that heart-soaring like stand up in a movie theater and cheer kind of feeling, which is really hard to pull off. Thank you so much. It's true. You guys, if you're listening to this, like, Hannah, can they pre-order yet? No, they can't. Okay. Sorry. Well, everyone should go follow Hannah so you know that when you can pre-order, you should absolutely do that because it might just sell out, you guys. Go get it. You are so optimistic. But yes, you know, (laughs) please pre-order my book. That would be great. I didn't record our initial conversation, but if I had... I am guessing there was a certain bet I placed that was like, Hannah, you're going to be fine. <laughs> um, I, I believe you've, we've had this I told you so conversation a couple of times. A couple of times. <laughs> I, we skip we skipped the question about the multiple offers. Do you want to talk about multiple offers at this point? Like I said, I sent uh, queries out in March. I had my first offer within a couple of weeks. And by the time I was done having conversations with different agents and things like that, uh, I had five offers on the table. Yeah, you did. Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) I had five offers um, and that was both the most exhilarating and sort of terrifying experience. (laughs) Trying to decide between five amazing offers was very difficult for me. So what advice do you have for writers who are in that position? First of all, you should celebrate. Um, <laughs> congratulations. It's a great position to be in. I'm terrible at taking my own advice. Uh, I, I got the offers and then I was basically a puddle of anxiety trying to figure out how to make the decision. Jessica knows this. Yeah, I know. Um, I was very anxious about it. <laughs> but first of all, my advice is you should, you should take a moment out for yourself and celebrate because that's not something that happens to a lot of people. So you should be really happy that you got to that point. Um, note to self, Anna, learn how to celebrate <laughs> your successes. <laughs> Second of all, I just think you should take your time. Um, you should have a list of questions that you're going to ask each agent. You should evaluate um, their the way that you are going to be able to work with them, whether they're the right fit for you. Because sometimes an agent that has everything that you could possibly want on paper, um, once you start talking to them, you realize that they're not really for you 
or sometimes you drive really well with people as friends, but you also have to realize that your agent is a business partner at the end of the day um, in the business that is you and your work. Um, so you need to think about it from that perspective as well and not just this is somebody that I think I could hang, I would have fun hanging out with or that I would have fun sending memes to or things like that. Um, it, it's a business decision at the end of the day and you need to think about the person who's going to do justice to your books and to be able to sell them and make a living out of them, hopefully. So I say you should take your time and evaluate that decision carefully. Um, and yeah, just do what you feel is best for you. And in terms of the questions, it's pretty easy to find a list of questions to ask a potential agent yes. online. Everybody uses Jim McCarthy's article. Ooh. Everybody. <laughs> we can link to it in the show notes. I was going to say yeah. that. Everybody uses a particular article written by Jim McCarthy um, that has a list of questions. I did add a couple of my own, but yeah, the questions I added were very specific for me. Um, first of all, I asked every agent. Um, I, I am not apologetic about my background. Um, the stories that I want to write are always going to be Malaysian stories. They're going to be Malaysian characters. A lot of the time, they're going to be Malaysian settings. And I wanted to make sure that each um, agent that I would potentially work with knew that. So I would say that if you are writing from a particular background, a particular experience, a particular point of view, and that's very important to you, then you should be very clear with potential agents that this is what's going to figure largely in your stories. This is what you're about. They should be okay with representing that. And the second thing that I asked was, basically I asked every agent, what makes a good client a good client to you? Everybody had very interesting and illuminating responses, actually. What was the strangest? The strangest? I don't think anybody gave me really strange responses. It was all very, um, very much things like, you know, I expect you to be um, writing instead of just waiting around and worrying. I think that, you know, I expect you to be communicative about your worries um, and things like that. Those are the questions that I added. Um, but... Uh, for the Jim's article has a good list of basic questions as well. But that's true. We don't want you sitting around and stewing because it's only going to get worse. Right. And I mean, it's it's not like I won't sit around and stew anyway. I do, but at least I'm like I'm I'm also trying to I'm I'm aware that I'm sitting and stewing. Um, so I try to move myself out of that space. But yeah, it's just good to know what your agent is going to expect out of a working relationship with you, as well. So. Definitely. I think there are a lot of things about this that are scary for writers a lot of the time. It seems yes. mysterious. It seems intimidating. Um, but what were you most afraid of when you started writing? It wasn't really worries about, you know, agents and things like that. Um, my worry was all to do with questions of identity. I was worried that I was going to get representation wrong because there's so many layers of identity in this book. There's, you know, there's being Muslim, there's being mentally ill, there's being Malaysian. And I was, and all the different, you know, ethnicities within Malaysia as well. And I was very conscious and worried, and I still worry that any one of those portrayals is going to cause harm or offense in a way that I didn't intend. I worry about that. I worry about uh, about making sure that I get representation right all the time. 
I was also worried that this was a story that a non-Malaysian, non-Southeast Asian audience wasn't really going to get. And that was obviously quickly put to rest after after <laughs> querying and getting the responses that I did. It, it, it was It's still something I worry about now with a greater audience. Um, there are so many books, there are so many great books that, you know, readers can give their time and attention to. And I just worry that my story is too much out of people's comfort zones for it to be something that they want to spend their, their time on. So those are, those are my worries. My worries are literally about identity mostly. <laughs> I'm, I'm concerned that you're talking in the present tense. I think you should put these in the past tense. <laughs> and on that note, how do you just get rid of those fears? I mean, the, at this point, you know, they're unfounded. You know, you have a strong story. You know, you had a lot of, you know, you, you had agents fighting over you. So, you know, it's good. So how do you get over those fears in your own self? See, rationally, I know, I, I know these things <laughs> rationally. But your brain's not always rational. Your brain on anxiety especially is not always rational. So basically, for me, it's not so much about getting over it as just not focusing on it. I know myself well enough to know that I know that anxiety is never really going to go away. Mm -hmm. So I need to channel all this nervous energy into doing something else, which is why I start writing new things almost immediately after I finish previous projects. Since I finished The Weight of Our Sky, which is my book, I have since completed two full novels and half of two more. What, so, what, how, um, hold on. So you were at 2000? 2017. Since, since 20, February 2017. You've done um, three, no, three novels? There's, yeah, pretty much. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, but that's just what it is. It's just literally nervous energy <laughs> that has to be channeled in other ways. Yeah, it's it's literally I just need to be working on the next thing because otherwise I start um, focusing too much on things that I shouldn't focus on. And that's just that's literally this is just my process, guys. If anybody else is out there listening to this and thinking like, well, crap, she's written three books in like a year and a half or whatever. I'm not doing enough or you know what? Your own pace is your own pace. This is just how I cope with my weird brain. Like I can't otherwise I can't I can't function. What's so this is this one. Jessica has to ask this one because I'm not as familiar. <laughs> These are insider questions, Jessica. These are, oh. I had the pleasure of tweeting with you and you always have the perfect tea gift. How do you do it? <laughs> I literally just search for tea and look for good gifts to send you. I have no magical tea gift stash, Jessica. <laughs> but there are I'm so literally. many and they're always just, so perfect. I just look for one that seems to fit the mood. And I send it to you. I don't. You but you're so fast. You always ask me how I find these gifts. I'm like, seriously, Jessica, I don't keep them on hand or anything. I just look for them. See, I would think that you had because you're so fast and they're so perfect. And they're everything from like cute little Disney-like mice. Twitter too much. That's what that means. <laughs> Skills, Hannah. That Skills. I tweet way too much. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. I don't think I drink <laughs> enough tea. I, I, I want to get in on this. I always forget <laughs> to drink tea. <laughs> the I coffee I made was so strong this morning. I think like a, like a, a <laughs> Did you think of me? stood up in it. No, it was horrible. <laughs> I, I started to desperately pull out the grounds um, from the French press. Yeah, I don't drink coffee at all. And I drink tea very seldom. 
Um, so I just I just bring out the tea gifts for Jess because I oh, know that's she awesome. Does. I like oh, them. pretty much. I like them a lot. That's, yes, you're basically the only re- person I use that that many tea gifts with. <laughs> I think any enterprising listener who wants to see these amazing gifts could go to Twitter advanced search and look yeah, for tweets between us and find or, the best or, tea gifts ever. <laughs> or you can just you can just at me on Twitter and I'll send you some. It's fine. You can just be like, I need a tea gift stat. And I'll be like, all right, I'll find you one, honey. I got you. It's I would fine. actually kind of love that if that was something you did on the side, like a tea gift I'm service. Kidding. I mean, if, if you need it, I'm here for you, friends. Honestly, <laughs> if you I got your tea gift needs covered. I love Come that. and look for me. Hannah's <laughs> tea gift shop. The final question is, what is Nasi Lamak and why should we all order it? <laughs> I made Jessica go out and find nasi lemak. Guys. And I am so glad you did. Nasi lemak is like a staple Malaysian dish. Um, usually people have it for breakfast, but you can have it any time of day. It's completely acceptable to have it whenever you want. Um, it's basically rice um, cooked in coconut milk. So lemak, nasi means rice and lemak means literally like fatty. Like, um, I don't know how else to explain it. It's rice cooked in coconut milk and... Um, some spices or some, you know, ginger and a little bit of salt and things like that so that it gets really um, rich and uh, flavorful and savory. And it's served with a side of sambal. So like a spicy, um, usually anchovies. uh, And then uh, a boiled or a fried egg, whichever you want. Um, Some peanuts, uh, some fried, crunchy, like small anchovies, not the big ones that you guys put on pizza. Those are gross, but like the small, <laughs> small, very small anchovies that get really crispy when fried up. So you've got this play of lots of different textures going on. And sometimes the sambal has anchovies in it. Sometimes it has um, shrimp. Sometimes it has different things, but um, it can also be served with a side of um, rendang, which is like a, a very, a, oh, I don't even know how to, how do I describe rendang? Um, like a, a savory, um, spicy type of sauce, very close to curry, but not quite, with either beef or chicken in it. And it's delicious, basically. I, There's at least two or three Malaysian restaurants in New York alone. Oh, a so lot you guys more. can totally find it. There's a lot more now, but back when I was there, I don't think there was that many. But every major American city now probably has I'm a Malaysian sure. restaurant. I'll, I'll, I'll look in Boston. <laughs> I don't think we have it in Portland, but I'll look in Boston. There is. In Boston, in downtown Boston, there's a restaurant called Penang. Okay. It's very good. It's okay. very authentic. Very good. It's on my list. I'm going to put it yeah. on. It's and just down the street from the, what is it? I, I can't remember the hotel. Never mind. It's been a while since I've been in Boston. But yeah, there's a restaurant called Penang in downtown Boston that's really good. And I had the vegetarian version and it was still incredible. So I imagine the real yeah. version is even better. <laughs> and I feel like I've learned so much in this podcast. Like, I'm you glad. are... I rambled a lot. (laughs) Not at all. You were a breath of fresh air. I just like I just I'm so pleased to have met you. Thank you so much. I hope one day I get to meet people in real life. I feel like I always say I always say that it was really nice to meet people, but really when I have these conversations with people in the in the publishing world or in the YA community or whatever, it's always like this over Skype. And so I always hope that I get to meet people in real life one day. It is a very long flight though, so We'll see. How long is it? <laughs> um, about 22 to 24 hours of travel. Mm. This is a thing that I used to do um, every, 
uh, at least once a year, every year for about six years, um, because I used to first study and then work in the Chicago area. So <laughs> whenever I wanted to come home, that was or or go back to Chicago, that's literally what I had to do. Basically, fly for twenty four hours. Mm. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> what better way to spend so twenty four hours? Fun. It was uh-huh. so fun. But also now I'm 33, so that's probably not as fun now as it was. Oh, <laughs> Hannah, so, I'm, so, I'm so grateful that you did this. Thank you, Hannah. Thanks, guys, for having me. I hope there was something worth hearing. So <laughs> much. I think, I think she maybe closed up, but is telling us um, the details about your book and when it's coming out. And where we can okay. find it. <laughs> where we can find it. Um, okay, um, The Weight of Our Sky is coming out in spring 2019 from Salam Reads, um, which is a Simon & Schuster imprint. And it should be available everywhere, but uh, I, I have no pre-order links yet, but you can add it on Goodreads. It's already there. Um, I am available at any point. Uh, I'm always interested in helping international writers, especially writers from Southeast Asia, break into the publishing world. So if you have any questions about the publishing process, about how to get an agent, uh, just any concerns like that, you can always um, add me on Twitter and ask me. Uh, and my handle is, yes, it's Hannah with uh, Hannah spelled H-A-N-N-A. So, or you can just look for Hannah Alcaf on Twitter and I'm there. Um, I'm always on Twitter. I'm probably on Twitter more than I should be, but there you go. Well, I hope not every single person takes advantage of that because that's very uh, generous of you. <laughs> Thank you. That's no, fine. I, I, you. I, you know, we need more of those voices and I'm always happy to help because I think um, in some regions, especially that there are there aren't that many of us who have um, gone into this strange new world. Um, and so it's always helpful to talk to somebody who's actually done it. So I'm always open to those kinds of questions. So I think everyone can sense that great things are happening here and they should get in early and follow you now so they can say they knew you before. (laughs) You guys don't even understand. Jessica does this to me all the time. She's always like, I told you, I told you this was going to happen. I tell her something and she's like, I told you this was going to happen. Um, Yeah. And I'm always right. This is the worst part. She is always right. That's the worst part of it. She does have every right to say, I told you so. It's just, I just have to sit there and take it. (laughs) On the record, I say great things in your future. So there. Thank you. And I will circle back and tell you I told you so. And thank you so much. And you know, I I owe a lot to the Manuscript Academy. I owe a lot to to that that first session that I had, that well, that one and only session that I had with John Cusick that helped me make my query letter better. And it worked? <laughs> it did. It did work. It did work. That's This is why I sing your praises. Um, this is why I talk about the Manuscript Academy um, and, and things like that. It's because it really did help me to have somebody who was in the business sort of validate my story and tell me that it was it was something that could work. It, it, it was That's a great, great experience. To have an agent tell you that your your query letter works and your story works and, and here's how you can make it better. And, and you know, it, it seemed to work. I mean, I, I sent like 30 some queries, 32, 35, and I had 21 requests. Wow. Which That's was amazing. Really unexpected and great. That never um, happens, just so you know. It doesn't happen. <laughs> never? I'm not sure about never, but like it, it worked out okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Very rare. And obviously, and, and obviously some of those requests came in after I already had the, an offer of rep. So, but in the end it was, yeah, it was 21 out of 35 or something like that. Wow. Never let them tell you it can't be done, guys. That's the perfect ending right there. Ah, uh, thank you so, so much. Thank you. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.